0: Welcome to the Friday podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. And today we are talking about full swing. Full swing is the docuseries on professional golf that just premiered on Netflix and has created a tremendous buzz in the golf world. Everybody's talking about this. And I would imagine that there are a lot of podcasts in your feed on this very topic. So I hope my guest today and I will be able to introduce some fresh stuff into the conversation. But right off the bat, I just want to say that it's really exciting, I think, that professional golf is getting the Netflix treatment. There's real potential that it will attract new interest in golf and deepen people's appreciation and understanding of the game and some of its characters. And it's just a huge accomplishment that it got made at all. So, congratulations to Chad Mum and Paul Martin and the whole production team there. So, with that said, My guest is Megan Schuster, who is an editor and podcast host for The Ringer. Megan has covered both golf and Formula One for The Ringer, so I figured she would be an especially insightful guest for this episode because Full Swing is more or less trying to follow the model of Drive to Survive, which was the is the Netflix docuseries that has done a lot to popularize F1 in America. I've been wanting to have Megan on for a long time. She's one of my favorite voices out there. So really excited to have this conversation with her. So let's talk about the issue of spoilers and when the best time to listen to this podcast might be. Our intention is to make this episode something you could listen to before or after watching all eight episodes of the full swing season. But we do talk about specific moments in the series. Now, the traditional notion of spoilers, I don't think really applies here because if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know basically what happened in professional golf last year. I would be shocked if you didn't know who won the majors, for instance. And, you know, the show is in some part about who won the majors. Now, there might be some people out there who don't want to know anything about what the Netflix cameras caught behind the scenes. So that's up to you. But basically, our goal here was to ride that line between giving a general overview of the show and talking about some of the most interesting, specific scenes. Now, for a more in-depth take on Full Swing, we at The Fried Egg have actually created a whole separate podcast. It's called Full Swing Thoughts, and it's hosted by Andy Johnson, Brendan Porath, and Joseph LaMagna. I haven't listened to every episode yet, but I'm excited to dig in because those guys are so smart and funny. Now, Full Swing Thoughts, this new show, is intended to be consumed after you've seen the series or as you're watching the series. Um, so it's a little more in-depth, specific And I could imagine that, you know, this podcast right here could be one that sort of introduces full swing, uh, to you and, and gives you some, some ideas uh, about our take on it and some discussion around that. And then full swing thoughts can really get into the nitty gritty for you. You can find full swing thoughts, wherever you get your podcasts. And there's also a link to the feed in the show notes for this episode. So check that out. And without further ado, let's go to Megan Schuster. All right. So Megan Schuster, do you go by Meg?
1: I, I go by Megan, um, but my social media, I signed up for it when I was in high school and it all has Meg on there. So I, I get called both pretty often at this point in my life and fine with both, but I, I generally would introduce myself as Megan.
0: Okay. Because I feel like sometimes people see a Megan and just automatically start calling her Meg, which uh, yeah. you know, isn't, isn't always wanted. We do have a Meg in the fried egg. So uh, happy to keep you as a Megan. So how did you you cover both golf and F1 for the Ringer? I know you you worked for Grantland, I believe as well. RIP. Um RIP. So golf and F1, how did you end up covering golf for the Ringer? What's what's your background in the game?
1: Yeah, golf was a little bit of a happy accident. Um the Ringer started in 2016 and we just didn't have a whole lot of people on staff who either loved golf or had the ability to cover it. We have a lot of golf fans on staff, but most of them are, you know, heavy into other sports, other major responsibilities. They didn't really have time to kind of follow it in that way. So I think it was ahead of maybe the either 2016 or 2017 Masters. They asked me if I was interested in writing about it, and I just kind of jumped into it from there. Um, I've always been a big golf fan um horrible golf player so uh i always feel like a little bit of a fraud when i talk about golf listen um, join the club and write about golf because it's the whole game thing does not come naturally to me um but yeah one of my favorite sports to watch um and it has become one of my favorite things to cover too
0: Cool. And and you've also been getting into F1. You sometimes co-host or host the, the Ringer F1 show as well. And that's relevant for the current discussion of golf and the Netflix documentary, because of course, they're sort of trying to follow the F1 drive to survive model, where there was this very popular F1 docuseries about the sport, and a lot of people ended up getting into Formula One because they watched that documentary and were sort of fascinated by it. So, did you get into F1 through Drive to Survive? Where you one of I don't I don't know if there's a name for uh, that 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 generation of F1 fans, uh, but but I'm I'm among them. Are mm-hmm. you among them as well?
1: I am, yes. I It was one of my kind of COVID lockdown shows. I'd had multiple coworkers recommend it to me and um, it was just something that I never really thought I would enjoy. I've never been a big racing fan before in my life, like wasn't an IndyCar gal, wasn't into NASCAR. So I kind of thought it was pointless. And then, you know, in the middle of lockdown, we all <laughs> have to find our comfort somewhere. And so I turned it on and I got really heavily invested. Um, and then yeah, now uh, Box to Box Films, which is the company that produces Drive to Survive, is now also producing Full Swing, the golf show, Point Break, the tennis show, and is yeah, kind of helping Netflix get into this sort of sports docu series territory. Um, but yes, I'm I'm definitely part of. I think they just call it the Drive to Survive generation. At least that's what I call it. Uh, okay. and, nothing yeah. more
0: derogatory than that. I have a feeling that like <laughs> I don't know this, but I feel like hardcore F one F one fans have to somewhat look down their noses. Oh, people who got into it through this documentary
1: yes absolutely yes that that is the case um luckily i think most of our f1 audience is uh well i actually i can't say that i don't know where they're all from i would imagine a lot of them are americans who probably have gotten into it over the last few years along with the rest of us but yeah yeah I'm, i'm sure there are some uh some looking down of the nose at at all of us
0: some F one snobs. Uh, yes. So, what do you think? I mean, just as a, a way to set up how we're going to assess what full swing is doing. What do you think may drive to survive so good?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a combination of a few things, and and I think this will cross over a bit with the golf too. I think first and foremost, as far as you know number of people that you need to know, big names that you need to know in Formula One, I feel like it's fairly accessible in that way. There's only 20 drivers on the grid at any point in time, 10 team principals. If you feel like you need to know who the team principals are, 10 teams. I, I, You know, when I try to get my friends into it, I always say that, you know, maximum 30 people, really 20 people, really 10 if you want to get into like the title race of it. So I feel like that alone makes it a pretty effective sport to get into. But as far as drive to survive specifically, I think they did a really good job, at least of the first two seasons, of not focusing too heavily on the title race, especially in those seasons. It was, you know, Mercedes by a mile and no one else was really close. So instead of focusing on that, they really let you into the lives of, you know, Daniel Ricciardo and some other big, big personalities on the grid and made you fall in love with the people behind it rather than the sport itself. And then as, you know, the seasons go along and you start to get a little bit more familiar with it, then they start really introducing kind of the racing and strategy aspect and kind of try to educate you along the way. But just to hook people, I think they really focused on the people behind Formula One. And I think that was ultimately really successful.
0: And there was a kind of boldness to that strategy, right? Because the only mm-hmm. Formula One driver that I knew by name before watching Drive to Survive was was Lewis Hamilton. Sure. And Lewis Hamilton did not participate in mm-hmm. the first season of Drive to Survive. Mercedes wasn't there. Ferrari wasn't there. Right. Ferrari was probably the only other team that I could have named as a Formula One team. I'm like, oh, yeah, for sure. Ferrari has to be mm-hmm. one of the teams. You know, Michael Schumacher uh, drove for them. Right, right. And so... You know, there's there's a there's a gutsiness to opening with other characters, but it was also by necessity. Right. Because Mm -hmm. they couldn't they didn't have access to these big star drivers. And so they made the most of Daniel Ricciardo and Mm -hmm. Gunther Steiner. And they really (laughs) made a great season or two of television out of those characters. And then all of a sudden, Lewis Hamilton, I'm sure, was looking at the success of it and saying, well, crap. Now, Ricardo is more you know popular than I am. What's going on here? And had Mm -hmm. to end up participating and so it, it the the gamble sort of paid off there
1: yeah season 1 for them definitely seemed like a bit of a prove it season. Um, I remember when I started watching drive to survive, I actually had messaged the person who recommended it to me and was like, wait, if Lewis Hamilton won this season, why did I not see any of him? Why did he not speak like, like what's going on here? And he had to actually inform me that, yeah, like both Mercedes and Ferrari declined to participate and wanted to see basically how it went and whether it was worth them getting involved at all, or if it would just kind of be a distraction. And now, you know, they're stalwarts on this on the series every year lewis hamilton is will be in season five so yeah i I think from that perspective it was really interesting and it was kind of a big bet i think for them to believe that they could cultivate these characters and make people care about the drivers who are farther down the grid and ultimately i think in that way make f1 as a whole more interesting than just caring about the top two teams at any given time
0: right and I think there's a number of other aspects of F1 that that make it lend itself so well to TV. You know, some of those you mentioned, like there's a limited number of teams and people you have to be familiar with mm-hmm. in order to really follow F1. You know, it's just 10 teams on the grid and you've got the two drivers per team and you've got the team bosses and. And that's really all you need to be familiar with. The races happen, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks Mm -hmm. during the F1 season. And you can watch them pretty easily. Like, it doesn't take that long to follow the races. And so if you're trying to distill this down to a season of television, it's pretty easy in a lot of ways. Everybody's going for the same goal, which is to win the season-long championship or to place high in the Mm season-long championship. And, you know, there's a simplicity to the F1 season that seems I mean, it's already structured like a television season right from the get go, you know, and and mm-hmm. that that had to have made it pretty simple to make drive to survive in a lot of ways compared to other sports, especially tennis and golf.
1: Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's it's very easy to track one specific driver's progression across a full season. They're going to have their highs. They're going to have races where they suck. They're going to have races where they get on the radio with their race engineer or team principal, and they're arguing. And, you know, you can always blow that up into something, which, you know, is something Drive to Survive has been accused of a little bit is <laughs> yep. over-dramatizing Formula 1, which I'm sure we can get into with golf later on. I'm sure there'll be some criticisms there, rightly so. And, um, you know, now that I've been watching a few actual full F1 seasons, having, you know, started with Drive to Survive and now actually watching the races themselves. I I feel like I understand those criticisms, but also for me, I feel like the show and the actual Formula One season almost exists in two separate universes for me, where the show now feels um, like a reality show. And, and I love watching it for the drama. I love watching it for the um, the chaos that it causes, where, you know, if you're watching the full F1 season, you're not just getting those kind of distilled little nuggets. You're getting the week-to-week picture. So yes. um, in, th- in that perspective, I think it's really interesting. But I-, I love both for, you know, both of the things that they offer.
0: All right. So let's get into full swing a little bit. It's eight episodes. When we release this podcast, they'll have been out for one day, 24 hours about. And so, you know, just assessing this season of TV as a whole, what do you think were some of the things that it did well?
1: Yeah, I think it followed the drive to survive model in the same way that it really Rather than focusing on results across the whole season, rather than focusing on um, on course performance, it really tried to let you know who some of these guys are from, you know, major stars that people are probably already familiar with, like Justin Thomas down to, you know, the rookies to Joel Damon, to some guys that maybe, you know, if you hadn't watched this full PGA Tour season, you didn't really know about. So I, I think it, in that way, it succeeded. Um yeah, there were other struggles, but I, I think that pure kind of distilled character creation, if, if you want to say it that way, was was really successful for me.
0: I thought the series did do some good, subtle character work in a lot of cases. And one thing that it was particularly good at was when a player was less than likable. The series did a good job of sort of conveying that Without yes. being obvious about it. And so I think the episode that focuses on Ian Poulter, for instance, it, it shows a lot of Ian Poulter's positive characteristics. You know, his, his uh, great gift of gab, his ability right. to describe things and narrate things in a way that not many <laughs> athletes have, his mm-hmm. a sense of humor. But it also portrays some of his brattiness and and, yes. and all, all that kind of stuff, His his air of smugness and superiority. Like it comes through really clearly. Mm-hmm. In in that show about him, and maybe that's inevitable just because he was being himself more or less. Right, but right. but I thought that the show did a pretty good job of of showing that. And in some other cases where the characters were like less likable than Tony Finau, right, who mm-hmm. is who is maybe the nicest and most likable person on the PGA yes. Tour and comes across that way in the show. There, you know, not everybody is coming across that way in their episodes. And I thought that was good, right? That the show is not trying to promote these guys, that it's trying to show something about, about who they actually are.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a little villainy, I think it all gets to be portrayed as kind of puff PC and like, oh, well, everyone on the PGA Tour is such a great guy. Why wouldn't you want to root for these people? And it just feels more fake if you don't have any of that edge in there. Um I feel like with most of the guys, they tried to give you at least a a semi-3D picture of who they are, you know, with how they interact with their families, how they interact with other professionals on the course, what is going through their minds if they're mic'd up on the course and, you know, in the middle of their round. So I I feel like they tried to give you, at least in most cases, a a relatively holistic view of who these guys are. So yeah, that that was fun to see.
0: Who do you think, which player do you think... Benefits the most image-wise from their appearance in this in this uh, docu series.
1: Oh, for sure, Joel Damon, and and I think that's for a lot of reasons. Like I I feel like you know I'm, and I think a lot of people are just drawn to like the average everyday golfer who goes out there, tries their best. Like it, it's just very relatable from that. Perspective about his game and the fact that he will just openly tell you, no, I I don't think I have what it takes to be the best in the world. I don't think I have what it takes to be in a major, um, or win a major, I guess. But I also found sort of his kind of mental struggles very fascinating and very illuminating, and that air of vulnerability that I feel like can be really hard to get from professional athletes. And he was just so open and honest about, yeah, like I, this is something that I have to work on. This is something that if I do ultimately want to win consistently on the PGA tour or be one of the top 20 some 30 some golfers that this is something I need to overcome and even his caddy saying like I don't know if Joel wants to be in the top 30 like I don't think he wants that pressure I just I always feel like with golf something I love the most is getting inside golfers heads and that episode I felt like along with one or two of the other ones really let you see the inner machinations of of how somebody goes out there and, and tries to do this every week.
0: I agree. Joel's episode was great. And his relationship with Gino Bonnelly, his caddy, was really endearing, right? Uh, and, and you know, those guys are are very open with each other. They say, I love you a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they, you know, it, it is a kind of marriage and they have a particular dynamic that is unique to the two of them. I also liked, you know, it's sort of a trope in these series to have the, uh, the workout scene, right? Everybody- yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets the personal trainer scene. It's in, Uh you know, Drive to Survive, uh, full swing. Just about every episode, we see Rory throwing a big medicine ball against a mirror. I don't know exactly how that works, actually. If you're supposed to be, it was a little
1: concerning. Yeah, I was like, (laughs) is that going to break? That seems like a a hazard. I yeah, was very confused by that.
0: It looked really cool, but it just didn't seem all that functional. But uh, Joel Damon's personal trainer scene was a hilarious. (laughs) It was almost like a parody. Of one of these personal trainer scenes in a sports documentary because he was just like, you know, like he was like, I don't want to do this. Can you can you please give me some things that make me look like I'm not a complete goober? And mm-hmm. and he's just sort of suffering and hating it. And and I just loved it. I like it was it was really real.
1: Well, and his pregnant wife being in there with him, basically talking <laughs> yes, trash to him and saying that, like, she was doing a better job than he was. And she
0: was right. She was. was yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't lying. It was just, yeah, really incredible television.
0: Yeah, that was great. So, another player that I think oddly will sort of benefit from his appearance in this series, you know, and oddly because he is not really the subject of one of these episodes, was Joaquin Neiman, who mm. appears most in Mito Pereira's episode or Mito Pereira's segment of his episode. Joaquin Neiman has gone to live. Right. He, yes. he, he is now on uh, the Live Golf Tour. The series doesn't really touch on that. It shows mm-hmm. him as sort of Mito Pereira's friend. And, you know, in a weird way, like he's not in the series very much, but it showed me something different about Joaquin Neiman, who I've sort of regarded as kind of a buttoned up, very organized, uh, withdrawn for the most part, uh, very talented young golfer. Yeah. But in, in his appearances and in, in these scenes with Mito Pereira, he kind of like had a little bucket hat on. And he was <laughs> sort of being the funny guy, like the party guy. And he's really skinny and little. I, I got a new perception of him as the guy in the friend group who's sort of the jester. And that to me made him made him charming. It's very much a sidebar in the series, but some of these players, some players sort of appear here and there and don't really become the subject of an episode, and some of those appearances would seem to be beneficial to them, I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I think Joaquin did come across very charming. I, I also thought it was very sweet seeing how he kind of supported Mito when he started doing better than expected during the PGA Championship and how he was, you know, trying to give him some advice, trying to help him stay relatively calm and locked in. And even how he was walking alongside, you know, Mito's wife and trying to give her some perspective on holes. And, you know, on the 18th, when he has his meltdown, Joaquin is there behind the green talking to his wife saying, oh, you know, this isn't actually for par, this is for birdie. And, you know, just, just like trying to support them through it. I thought, um, was sweet. And it's it's sweet to see like, you know, kind of the genuine friendships, I guess, that form on tour because mm-hmm. we're exposed a lot to, you know, the Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Ricky Fowler triad. And and that's all well and good. But there are so many other relationships out there that are really important. And I, I liked seeing that a lot.
0: Yeah, the guys from South and Central America on tour are really tight with each other. And we don't get much of a portrayal in that in mainstream golf media, mm-hmm. be partially because of the language barrier. But this, sure. you know, the Netflix series was able to break through that a little bit and speak to Mito's wife, whom Mito describes as little but charming, which I thought <laughs> was hilarious. She's little, but she's charming. Um <laughs>
1: Like, those are two mutually exclusive (laughs) things. Yeah. Like, Like, oh, she's short. So she can't be very funny.
0: Yeah, exactly. When you (laughs) you look at her, you see a little person, but she's actually quite charming.
1: I guess Um, Mito is pretty tall as as far as golfers are concerned. So maybe that's that's what he's referring to as their height difference. I don't know. But yeah, that was very interesting.
0: So, um, any players, in your opinion, who did not come off well?
1: Yeah, I I don't know if I feel like he didn't come off well or just we didn't really see any kind of real personality with him. And that was Colin Morikawa for me. Yes. Um, (laughs) I felt like, you know... You know, it doesn't help when you're in an episode alongside Tony Finau, who is the most personable golfer on the PGA Tour, and you see him as, you know, such a family man. He has his whole, you know, group of kids following him around on tour. He's there, you know, supporting his wife while she's going through the death of her father. And, you know, no one is going to come out looking like, you know, an angel next to that, but um, he just didn't seem like he had very much to offer. Like, really what we saw from him was, you know, kind of, him and his dog on his jet, which was fine. Um, and then his meeting with Adidas over clothes, which like it, it was like a totally fine thing what he did when he was you yeah, know kind yeah. of trying to pick out his outfits. Like you want to look nice when this is what you do for a living. But when that is sort of your portrayal up against Tony Finau, it just didn't come across really great to me. It didn't change my opinion of him, I don't think, but it also didn't make my opinion of him better.
0: I really wonder about Morikawa's segment and whether some of the unlikability that comes across was intentional on the part of the, the makers of that, yeah. of that show. Cause, you know, I don't think that Colin Morikawa is necessarily known as a, as somebody who's hard to deal with. I, I think he's maybe regarded by people in the media as being a little bit dull and guarded and sure. very managed, but. You know, there are not that many scenes of Morikawa. First of all, he plays no role in the drama of that episode, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. he, he doesn't really do anything in a tournament. He just kind of shows up to the Open, which he won the year before, and delivers back the trophy. That's the right. most we really get from him. But then the other scenes of him are on his private jet, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, complaining about one of his gloves that doesn't fit. Yes, yes. And in that Adidas meeting, which... As you say, like, it's valid for him to give feedback on the clothes that he's going to wear. He wants to be comfortable. That's what the meeting is for. But that scene was so awkward because mm-hmm. you have this Adidas guy who's just, like, using all this corporate speak and and mm-hmm. kind of, like, you know, so uh, it just seems awkward. And, uh, and that's what we get of Colin Murakawa.
1: It did have me questioning kind of what was left on the cutting room floor as far as Morikawa goes, like whether it was just that they didn't end up getting much time with him. So they needed to use what they had or like you're saying, whether it was more of an intentional choice where they did get more time with him and that is what they decided that they wanted to have come across in the show. And I don't know the answer to that, but um, that was one of my kind of bigger personality-related questions coming away was like, is that really, was that the end game? And, and you know, these people are so good at what they do that it does kind of make me think that that was the direction they wanted it to go. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be curious once people have watched it to see what their overall reaction is because, yeah, I, I was very curious about that.
0: Did you have a favorite family member?
1: Ooh, um... So I think it's a tie for me, uh, two people. We already talked about one of them a little bit, Mito Pereira's wife. Yes. Um, I think her name is Antonia. Um, was just very sweet to see how stressed out she was for Mito during the PGA Championship. And, you know, we, we don't really see, like golf families on the course and until, you know, somebody wins and then we see the big happy reaction and how, you know, sweet it is and how excited everyone is. And this was really the opposite of that. This is what was her watching her husband melt down in real time. And it was almost painful. Like I had to pause it at one point and just take a deep breath and like remember that those are not my emotions happening. They're hers. <laughs> um But it was it was tough to see her go from, you know, so excited over the Friday and Saturday to so so down and trying to be there for him on Sunday. Um, I thought she was great. And then I also, he had relatively limited time, but I found Matt Fitzpatrick's brother, Alex, very funny and very yes. relatable. And, and, you know, Matt Fitzpatrick is someone who can be a little bit sullen or a little bit more reserved. And I don't feel like he shows a ton of personality all the time, um, but Alex was like the total opposite and totally made up for that. And I felt like he helped show a different side of Matt too. So I, I liked both of them a lot.
0: Absolutely. In the Fitzpatrick episode, the contrast with Fitzpatrick that is set up is Dustin Johnson, which makes sense because DJ in his approach to the game is is in many ways the opposite of Fitzpatrick. Sure. He's the opposite in terms of physical stature and, you know, there's a rich contrast there. But DJ's segment of that episode didn't really come to anything because he simply just didn't do very well in the US Open mm-hmm. last year. But when Alex Fitzpatrick shows up, and is who he is, sort yes. of this lad, right?
1: Lad, yeah, exactly.
0: You know, uh, he's a bloke, and he and he and he shows up in the episode, and it's like this is a great point of contrast with Matt. It it kind of shows what Matt's both positive and, you know, more challenging qualities are. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think Fitzpatrick comes across okay in the episode. Yeah. But on his own, he's a little bit hard to relate to until you just realize that he he's just a nerd, right? That's yeah. that's it. He's just really into golf he loves the specifics of it and he works incredibly hard and has gotten a lot better and mm-hmm. all of that is very admirable but he can be a little bit hard to relate to i think his yes. brother is the is the bridge there for sure i
1: i agree the the one thing that i or the, I guess the other thing that I was excited that we got to see in the Fitzpatrick episode was all of his old notebooks because that that was sort of the talking point around him. You know, coming out of that U.S. Open was he's written down every golf shot he's ever hit since he was I, I forget how old, fifteen, fourteen. And I was I was always like, is is that real? Like like you can say that and that's fine. But seeing all of those notebooks that he still had stored away with his family, I was like, oh okay, this this really is you. And then when he and Alex were talking on the range, and Alex was like do you actually write down every shot that you hit on the range too? And he said, yes. I was like, oh, okay, you you are. That is just your mindset. This is not for show. That was Which is crazy
0: to write mm-hmm. down every shot you hit on the range. That's just, right? that's kind of another level. I mean, a lot of players, Keep track of every shot they hit on the course but i'm not sure how many are out there uh taking notes on the range uh, another shout out for a family member i have to give is uh sahith igala's dad who is mm. just a sort <laughs> of a ray of light and uh, yes. uh and you know sahith is is very likable on his own but it's kind of clear where he comes from and and some of the qualities that he has when you when you meet his dad mm-hmm. um There are talking heads in this series, right? Uh, There are people who sort of help contextualize things and narrate things that the players themselves are not uh, able to, you know, sort of explain in an effective way themselves. We have Sean Foley. We have Amanda Renner. We have Dan Rappaport. We have Dylan chair. I think all of them did quite well. Any of those that you thought sort of stood out as ones who might want to return and, you know, take on that role again?
1: Yeah. I mean, I will say all the talking heads have a a relatively difficult job in this show because, you know, similar to Formula One, they're trying to explain to you the rules about what happens. They often have to go into detail about, you know, what a golf tournament entails all four rounds. I think they had to mention multiple times throughout the show how the cut line works and how many players are advancing and the fact that you don't get money if you don't make the cut and all of that. So it's not easy to be, I guess, super interesting with this stuff. But um, I thought Sean Foley was, was great. I, I liked his perspective a lot. I felt like he was very personable and, and maybe this is just more what he got to weigh in on. Um, But, but I liked his perspective a lot. I also, I always love Amanda Runner. So I, I was yes. really happy to see her on that. I thought she did a great job.
0: I hope they gave her like Uh, an honorary executive producer credit or something Mm -hmm. because she was given the hardest job, I think, of any of the narrators in this series. And that was to tell us what a cut was, what birdies and bogeys were. She has often gone to, to... you know, do those explainers for mm-hmm. new people to the game. And that is such a hard job to do effectively. And, you know, she might be the most professional person in golf media. She pulls mm-hmm. it off. She does it with a smile, with good energy and yes. And, yes. and makes it pleasant to listen to. So it's not annoying. Um, mm-hmm. Favorite random scene or moment uh, that stands out to you? There are a lot of little micro scenes in this uh, in this series uh, are there any that that sort of stick in your memory
1: there are like five that i think i could call to mind from brooks kepka's episode alone that that is coming out of this show really the episode that i think is going to stick with me and the one that i found most overall illuminating um and and the moment that i will remember most i think is you know, he just didn't perform very well in a tournament, had some disappointing results and was coming back to his home in Jupiter. And his, you know, fiance was showing him some clothes she was going to wear, I'm guessing, on her bachelorette or, you know, something pre-wedding. And he's sitting on this kind of like fluffy, oversized swing that they have in their house <laughs> because professional golfers have swings in yes. their home and, and that's fine and normal. Um, that's and such he is a good just, <laughs> He's just sitting there dazed, completely not paying attention, nodding along, being like, yeah, sounds great. And you can just see him staring off into space in his own head. And, and he kind of explains later, he's like, you know, I am just really in my head about my game right now. Like if, if I'm not on the course, I'm like thinking about my swing, which seems to be a really new phenomenon for him um, and something he's he's pretty honest about throughout the episode. But that just seeing, you know, this big burly man sitting on this fluffy swing, looking at clothes and just like, could not be more checked out is is something that will stick with me for quite a while.
0: And looking haggard, like
1: very no, haggard. He
0: doesn't look good in his episode. He looks no. broken down, in pain, tired. the The bleached hair doesn't help in a lot of cases. It just kind of looks sad and limp.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it and, makes it look like a midlife crisis. Honestly, <laughs> that's
0: right. It's it's
1: it's really hard. It's it's a hard episode to watch.
0: Yeah, I'm laughing about it, but it is actually really sad. It's uh, Mm -hmm. seeing him in that state. It it's hard to see anybody struggling as profoundly as he clearly is in that episode. And to his credit, he's super open, Mm -hmm. vulnerable, honest about the struggle that he's going through. He says at one point, which I this is I found this stunning. I can't compete with these guys on a week to week basis you never hear a golfer say that much less Brooks Kepka who his whole persona is I can beat anyone
1: mm-hmm.
0: winning golf tournaments is easy that that was his whole thing in in 2017 2018 2019 yep now he's saying I can't compete with Scotty Scheffler, this you know uh, uh, like a character from a 50s sitcom Scotty Scheffler. <laughs> I can't compete with that guy. I mean, it's just an astonishing episode overall, I thought. And it's made up of scenes like the ones that you mentioned, which are very, very effective.
1: Yeah, the the vulnerability when when he's sitting on his couch with his mom and he is talking again about Scotty and he's saying, you know, Scotty's out there. He's the number one player in the world because he's not thinking about his game. He's like, I can virtually guarantee you that he leaves the course and is unbothered by what has happened on the course. And, And even when he's on the course, he's not overthinking things. He's processing at his normal speed, normal rate, just going about the motions because it's going so well. And there's like this longing in his voice when he's talking about that. Like, you know, that's how it used to be for him when he was kind of dominating, winning those four majors. And He's like I, I'm at the opposite place right now. I'm, I'm overthinking everything. I can't calm my mind down. I can't stop thinking about this game when I'm off the course, and that was like very painful for him to say. And and I I yeah I really give him a lot of kudos for being as honest about it as he was. And you know how the injuries have affected him and things. And it, it really like was illuminating to me too about his decision to go to live. And it, it seems like that opportunity maybe just came up for him at at the right or they got to him at the right time where he isn't competing he doesn't feel like he has this drive to beat the best players out there anymore on a week-to-week basis and um yeah it it felt like a little bit of like a Rosetta Stone for me of like okay this is why kind of Brooks has been doing what he's been doing over this time because he just has this big crisis of confidence
0: I'm washed up I'm offered a big bag of money, not only for myself, but also for my brother. Yes. (laughs) And and that, and that's, you know, that, that is, yeah, that's the story of that episode. They don't Mm -hmm. spell it out like that, but it's clear what that episode is implying that he knew he was washed. And that's why he took the big bag of money and ran. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's uh, very illuminating. A-, a scene that comes to mind for me, I don't think anybody else is probably going to notice this unless it become—it could become a meme, this scene uh, on Twitter. I could see that happening. Pat Perez. It, in a random scene. Pat Perez was not a participant in this documentary, but he shows up at, I believe, the RBC Heritage talking to somebody. I'm not even sure who. It might have been Poulter. He knows everyone's follower counts on twitter (laughs) on on instagram yes really specifically he (laughs) knows how many people follow ricky fowler on instagram he knows how many people follow phil mickelson on twitter he was just pulling these numbers off the top of his head not looking at his phone this stuff is in pat perez's head what's with that
1: (sighs) It was, like like you said, it was amazing. He wasn't like, oh, you know, Ricky's got around 30 million followers. He was like, he's got 153 million. (laughs) Or he's got, you know, however many thousand. (laughs) Phil has, you know, 1.68 million followers. I was like... What is, ha- and like you said, just totally off the cuff. They started this, I think they were talking about Ricky Fowler maybe and yes. why he's in so many commercials and, you know, he has such a big social media following and he doesn't post. That was another thing that I remembered where he was like, he doesn't yeah, ever post. I was he like, doesn't
0: even earn it. Yeah.
1: I was like, how often are you checking <laughs> Ricky Fowler's Instagram, buddy?
0: He must be really up to date. And it, it was, uh, that was just so weird and, uh, so and, and delightful in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yes. Um,
1: one of us. Totally.
0: This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Lumen. Lumen is a skincare brand for men with products that will keep your face clean while helping you reduce the signs of aging. One of the best bundles they offer is the Anti-Fatigue Essentials Bundle, which includes Dark Circle Defense, a charcoal cleanser, a moisturizing balm, and an exfoliating rub. The moisturizing bomb has been particularly big for me. I've, I've tried some of this stuff lately. This is not something that I expected I would do or that I've done before, um, but it has really been helpful. And especially the moisturizing bomb has sort of thrown into relief for me how dry the my skin has been. Um, It's really kind of reduced that dullness and dryness and it's made me feel more hydrated, made me look fresher. Uh, My wife has noticed the difference and uh, I've noticed the difference. I've I've felt a lot kind of healthier in that specific way. Thousands of others trust Lumen with their skin because it just works. It has over 5,000 five-star reviews, and Lumen is so confident that their product works that they are offering a 30-day free trial. Getting started is easy. Go to lumenskin.com, take their two-minute online quiz, and they will recommend the right products for your specific case. Plus, Friday Egg listeners will get a free gift with the code TFE. For a golf audience, this is specifically relevant stuff because sun exposure like you get when you play a round of golf, can increase and accelerate the signs of aging. So go check out Lumen at lumenskin.com and use the code TFE. All right, back to the episode. All right, so we have covered a lot of the positives of the series, some of the things that were funny, some of the things that the Netflix crew did well. And there are those things. What do you think were some of the difficulties that this show faced in covering a season of professional golf? What is tricky about the subject that this documentary tried to cover?
1: I think there are a lot of things. I think, you know, like we've kind of mentioned already, just the sheer number of tournaments, the fact that each tournament is four days, the fact that not everyone is at the same tournaments, and it's just difficult to create kind of a consistent story arc across a season. You know, like we have a tour championship at the end of the year, but but generally there's not I don't know, like a super giant arc at the end of the year where everything is coming together and everything matters like there are in some other sports. You're being um, nice.
0: Nobody cares about the FedEx. Nobody, nobody cares. About, <laughs> nobody the nobody Tour cares. Championship is like the worst cha- uh, worst tournament of the season. That is a huge problem. Nobody cares about the season-long championship, whereas in F1, no. that is people's lives to right. you know not only win the championship, but they care if they get fourth as opposed to fifth. Mm-hmm. And that's absent in golf. So yeah, that's a really good point. You're going on to some other factors as well. Yeah.
1: I, I also think they struggled a bit to kind of delineate for people the difference between winning a major and winning an average tournament. You know, they did a lot at the Waste Management Open, which is a great and wonderful tournament and incredibly fun. But, you know, I I didn't feel like there was a whole lot of difference portrayed between winning that versus winning, you know, the U.S. Open and some other things. And even like I think the closing arc to Tony Finau's story was him winning at the 3M, which like I live in Minnesota and I love golf, but like the 3M, (laughs) very few people care about the 3M. So so that was a little bit difficult for me um knowing what I know about golf and 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 I'm trying to come at this with like okay this is primarily you know they're trying to mix it in for people who do know golf and for people who don't sort of like drive to survive and so I'm like you're going to have some hiccups there. I think the biggest thing that I had an issue with too was um the live stuff and I felt like a lot of this series was built like they were going to really kind of dig into the controversy and really try to show some of the tensions that were happening. And, you know, they interviewed a lot of the live guys like Brooks, Dustin Johnson, Ian Poulter, all of that. I, I didn't feel like any of them were necessarily very interrogated on their decision. And I, I'm guessing some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, this show is related to the PGA Tour and and it, it's hard for them to like objectively come at someone and be like, why did you join? You know, what what about all of these, you know, deeper issues? Like when you say that, you know, this, you did this for your family and for the money. And, you know, don't you think about X, Y, and Z? And they they showed a little bit of the clips of press conferences where they were asked that, but it didn't seem like the producers themselves were really digging into that in any way. And that was something that I felt was kind of a failing. I, that was something I was really looking forward to seeing in the show and felt like it felt pretty flat overall.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that Liv was unlucky for this series in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. And that's the opposite of what a lot of people thought last year when Liv was happening and people were like, oh, my God, the Netflix documentary is going (laughs) to be amazing. This Mm -hmm. is the perfect time to be covering the PGA Tour in a docuseries format. And I think that it was actually really unlucky that Liv happened this year because it threw a wrench in the works of what this season had to do, which was to introduce pro golf to a big audience. Mm -hmm. and clearly the choice was made that we need to do character portraits yeah. we need to bring these players on the stage introduce them to people make them easy to relate to in some ways try to explore a diversity of players like you know episode 6 and 7 deal with non-white players on the PGA mm-hmm. tour which i think was really important for this series to do and i'm glad that they did it but it was you know it it gave you an idea of how complex the task was of just introducing a cast of characters in the first season, mm-hmm. I think they were always going to do a poor job of introducing Live Golf because you know Live is sort of like golf fandom you know, junior level honors course, whereas JT and Speeth is golf fandom 101. Right, and, and this series was trying to do golf fandom 101 the choice was to do these character-focused episodes. What did you make of that choice overall, just even beyond the live stuff? The choice Mm -hmm. to go with characters rather than telling a narrative of the season or a narrative of the tournaments being played. Do you think it was a good choice to go with characters in in this way?
1: I think it's hard. I think, you know, as someone who binged all eight episodes over the course of a couple of days it, it did get a bit monotonous the fact that it was all character studies like it felt like there was a bit of a bingo card of like oh okay we followed them to their house here's that scene doing something relatable now they're at this tournament and they're not doing so well and they're questioning you know x piece of their game or x thing that's going on in their lives and then you know at the end they kind of find some redemption or they don't and and that is what it is and so that was a bit difficult um I I will say, I I think this is something that Drive to Survive did a lot at the beginning, too, where they are kind of trying to introduce the audience to the people and to get you familiar with them and Um, figure out who you like who you don't like who is going to be someone that you want to consistently follow and I feel like now drive to survive is just starting to get into more of the issue stuff like you know in this forthcoming season they're going to address some of the car porpoising that happened last year some of the cost cap stuff some of the more intricate things that they I don't think would have touched with a 10 foot pole in the first season or two so I'm, I'm trying to be like a bit charitable with my criticisms because I'm hoping that maybe full swing is trying to build up to that and kind of lay the foundation and give viewers something to build upon so that when they do you know get to more tournaments specifically and more you know wider scale events in the game that they're able to do that a little bit better. but yeah, it was definitely weird all the flashbacks to all of the different tournaments and and it was jarring for me at times too. I was like, why are we doing this again?
0: My feeling was that in Drive to survive, characters would come back for multiple episodes, right? They, you know, Daniel Ricardo wasn't just in the first episode and then Mm -hmm. kind of disappeared. He was there sort of a consistent presence more or less throughout the season, as I recall, and Mm -hmm. I haven't watched it recently. So if that's not the case, then my bad. But, you know, one thing that sort of happens in, in this series is that we meet Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth in the first episode we meet Brooks Kepka and Scotty Scheffler in the second episode and we more or less don't hear from them mm-hmm. for the rest of the series and so we don't yeah. get a sense for really what the narrative of their season was unless we look really closely at the last episode and realize oh there's Scotty Scheffler. I right, recognize right. him. And so, yeah, there's, it, 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 they, they did make a choice there and it's an mm-hmm. understandable choice. Um, it's also understandable because there's really no narrative to a golf season. I, I mean, that's sure. maybe the real underlying problem here. There is a narrative to an F1 season. There's not a coherent story often in a PGA tour season. And that's part of what these designated slash elevated events are trying to, you know, rectify, uh, going forward, I, I, I suppose, so. You know, I don't know if you like, obviously, you and I are pretty deep in the weeds on this stuff. We're not necessarily the only intended audience for, sure. for this series. Did you get a sense or did you ever think about whether this would be appealing to a non golf fan?
1: That's a good question. I, I struggle a little bit, I think, with the middle of uh, middle part of this season, um, once you get kind of through the Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Brooks Kepka episodes, and those are names that household people may know, um, it, it does get a little bit difficult in the middle part, um, you know, with Ian Poulter, Joel Damon, Matt Fitzpatrick, Dustin Johnson. There's not a whole like Joel Damon is great and has a lot of great character. And, you know, if people stick around for that episode, they will fall in love with him. But it is difficult. You're not getting a whole lot of like incredibly dynamic. Personality in there, or or you know, success on the golf course, and and I I could see that being kind of a point where, you know, with without sort of a a through line of a narrative arc of the full PGA Tour season, um, where that could lose people a little bit. I, I also think that it, it's a little more challenging with the PGA Tour portrayal overall because there are so many more golfers out there that you're going to see leaderboards on there where. There are, you know, the other 10 people on there, you may not know their name against the person that you're following. And I think that's a little bit difficult to um, if, if you're a casual fan being like, so are these other people on the leaderboard good? Is is this person just doing well? Like what is happening there where, you know, like we talked about earlier, that's a thing where drive to survive is able to succeed a little bit more because, you know, everyone on the grid. Um, so I, th- I think just like the sheer number of golfers is a little bit difficult and, You know, maybe some of the rules and stuff that they do their best at explaining all of that. But I I could see some some sticking points for the casual viewer for sure.
0: Yeah. And and the middle of the season that you're talking about is sort of the point when you realize that these episodes are not building on each other.
1: Right. Right. Yes. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they're all their own standalone episode. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you get to episode four, four and five, and you're like, oh, this is sort of the structure of the series. This is it we're not we're not going to be linking together these episodes into a big through line and and that can lose people for sure unless they're just really interested in being introduced to new characters in golf mm-hmm. and and trust the Netflix crew that they're going to show them something interesting about a brand new player that they haven't been introduced to yet and I think that that's probably going to be a big ask for, uh, you know, non golf fans. Now, clearly they, they made the calls they did because they were focusing on characters, not on the live story. The live story yeah. over the course of the season makes no sense. And I don't think that anybody, a non fan getting into it is going to understand the stakes of the live story at all. Nothing about it is really ordered in a way that, that I can follow. In this series, I feel like I wonder if you reacted the the same way to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they they do a lot of alluding to live things without I feel like fully fleshing some of it out. Like, you know, some of the talking head folks that they had were say things like, oh, you know, live is trying to change the face of golf and this could have huge stakes for the PGA Tour. And and they don't outside of, you know, them trying to get people to jump to the live tour, they don't fully address what the you know what the stakes are from a wider perspective you know they get into some of the pga tour like banning these people don't really explain why that is um there's there's not like a whole lot of delving into the causes for the tension and and like you said, the timeline of things, especially with the Cam Smith thing, like that was so dramatic and ended up being a storyline, you know, kind of throughout Sunday, which was super weird. The Sunday of a major, you're talking about this guy and you're watching him go out there and be incredible and vanquish this other guy who is also incredible. And at the end of it, it was sort of like, I don't even, very conflicting emotions. Like, I don't know how to feel about this if he's going to turn around and kind of jump over to live. And that wasn't, you know, outside of that sort of contentious press conference answer that he gave about it, um, wasn't super interrogated either. So, yeah, the timeline yeah. of it was definitely weird. The The first live tournament, I don't think they showed until maybe we got to the Dustin Johnson episode, which was like right. five episodes in. So, yeah. All, yeah, all of that was very interesting.
0: Yeah. In addition to that, I don't think we really learn in this series what the PGA Tour is.
1: <laughs> like, Yeah, true. Like we,
0: we spend We spend so much time <laughs> at the majors. We go right mm-hmm. to the to the PGA Championship and the Masters in the first two episodes. And there's no real time spent establishing what the PGA Tour is. And so if I'm somebody who doesn't know anything about this, Liv comes in and people are saying that it threatens the existence of the PGA Tour. I'm like, well, what's the PGA Tour? (laughs) Like, why does it matter? Why sure. Why is that important that the PGA Tour is being threatened? And I'm not sure that we really got that in this series. And and I, I don't want to be unkind here. This is eight episodes, and they made the choice mm-hmm. to focus on character portraits. But these are the kinds of things that get sort of left out. I, I wonder if you... I mean, live. it seems like Full Swing Season 2 is going to happen. I, I actually don't know uh, a lot of specifics about this. But, you know, if, if you were to have a wish list for what they would do in, in the, in the second season of, of this series, what are some of the things that you would want them to address or, you know, just do in, in season two of Full Swing?
1: Yeah. Well, number one on my wish list would be that they get Tiger, (laughs) of (laughs) course. Um, but you know, closely following that, I, I hope that they are able to delve into, kind of the changing structure of the tour right now with, you know, the elevated events and how that affects the star players, how that affects the people who are not so high up in the in the tour rankings. Um, I, I also hope that, you know, with those elevated events, we're able to get maybe a little bit more of a consistent storyline across the season. If, if you're getting people together more often, they're playing together more often, you can kind of compare their results a little more one-to-one than you're currently able to do. Something like that would be great. But yeah, just just generally like more of a mix of sort of the holistic storyline, and, and like you said, kind of calling people back with the one-off. You know, here is this person. Here is why they're interesting. Kind of standalones.
0: Yeah, I think I agree, and uh, and yeah, and I hope they get a chance to do it again. Like I, I think yeah. that this, you know, this first season missed for me in 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 a lot of ways, but I see the potential there. I think there's a talented crew behind it. And so hopeful that they keep to they keep at it and are allowed to keep uh, making it because there's there's obviously some potential in it. Um. All right. So Megan, where can people find you on Twitter and and where what what sort of audio venues are you going to be participating in uh, this year?
1: Yeah, well, you can always find me and all my colleagues at TheRinger.com. You can find me on Twitter at Meg Schuster. Um, you can also find me currently on The Ringer F1 show. Um, I'm hosting that for the next couple of months while the wonderful Kevin Clark is out on paternity leave. Shout um, out Kevin. Congratulations. Shout out to Kevin. Yes, many congratulations. Um, and hopefully I'll be on the show a bit, you know, throughout the F1 season after, after Kevin returns too. Um, yeah, those are kind of my big things right now.
0: Cool. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. To support the fried egg, there are a couple of things that you can do. First of all, if you leave a rating and review in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, that would be super, super helpful for us. At a higher level, you can join Club TFE. Go to the slash membership to see what Club TFE is all about. We offer a Club TFE blog. We offer weekly course reviews and ratings. We offer discounts in the pro shop. We offer early access to events. There's all sorts of stuff that comes along with Club TFE. We think it's been really fun so far. We just started it earlier this year, and we're really encouraged by how it's going. So join us in there, thefriedegg.com slash membership. And thank you, as always, for listening.